Welcome to Restored for Life with Pastor Ben Harris, the senior pastor at Restored Community Church, where God's perfect word restores imperfect people. Here's today's message from Pastor Ben. Greetings and welcome back to our study of the book of John. We're making our way through each passage. We're reading it and pausing to look at what it says and what it says to us. We have made it to John chapter 6. We are almost halfway through the chapter, so you can turn there now in your Bibles. We've seen Jesus perform many miracles so far, and he's just getting started. The miracles validate that he is God and the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world. A second purpose for Jesus' miracles was that He used them to set up his message. So the miracles introduced his message. He always had a message right after he healed somebody. At the beginning of his letter, John tells us the reasons why Jesus had come into the world. And here they are. There's two of them. John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. With with his coming and his arrival, he brought grace and truth. He fulfilled the law perfectly, but with him he brought grace and truth. First came grace, and then came truth. First came the miracles, and then came the message. Last week we looked at how he fed the 5,000, and in feeding the crowd, he gave them grace by allaying their hunger. Now, after following him back to Capernaum, he would give them the truth, which leads to eternal life. Some accepted it, but most rejected it. Some continued to follow, but many would follow no more. We'll hear four responses today to Jesus' message. Let's begin with response number one, a curious response. Verse 22, we'll begin our reading. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea, this is the side where the eastern side, the northeastern side of where he fed the 5,000, when uh, when the people on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate bread, after the Lord had given thanks. When the people, therefore, saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? No doubt the throng of people that made it back to Capernaum were shocked to find Jesus and his disciples in great condition. They had seen the disciples and and Jesus the day before. They had heard Jesus tell the disciples to get into the boat. And by the way, this was just a small fishing boat. Go home and Google the Jesus boat. It's a boat that they found under the mud when the Sea of Galilee went down uh, quite a distance, they discovered that there was a small fishing boat stuck in the mud. Well, they carefully began to pull it apart and realized this is a thing of antiquity. 
they did some tests on it, and this, is, uh, this little boat was from a, the period that Jesus lived. It just sunk, and the mud covered it and protected it. They brought it out, and it's, it's a fascinating thing to look at, but it's not very big. It can't be more than 16, 18 feet in length. So they all get in this little fishing boat, and the freeboards, it can't be more than 18 inches. It's, it's, man, when it sits in the water, it was not meant for rough seas. So they see these disciples get in this little fishing boat and enter into a monstrous storm, and they were surprised that they made it out of it unscathed. They had seen Jesus go back up to the mountain at night before and assumed that he was um, far from Capernaum. They believed he was still back across the sea. They asked him how he had gotten back so quickly. Jesus preferred that people seek him due to his miracles than merely follow him in order to be fed again. And, of course, he could, he could read the hearts of men, we're told, earlier, earlier chapters. He could see what was on a man's heart. He could see that the, the vast majority of, of these thousands of people that were now following him just wanted to be fed again. Hey, Jesus, whip up some more fish and bread. That's what we're here for. And Jesus wasn't going to have it. He was going to give them. He was going to draw a line of division. He was going to force them to choose why they were following him. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. When Jesus used the word labor, the crowd assumed he meant that salvation would come by works. They ignored the word give in the sentence, however, because salvation is a gift. There's nothing that we bring to salvation. There's nothing that we can add to it or take away from it. What Jesus did on the cross, he did. We don't bring any, any good to the table. We can't earn this, but they assumed that's what he was talking about. So they followed up with this question, verse 28. Then they saw, or then they said to him, what shall we do? They're still back with, what do we have to do? What do we have to perform? Uh, what, what laws do we need to keep? What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And in that question, what they're really asking is, tell us how that we could multiply fish and bread. Tell us so we don't have to go out in the field and, and reap and sow, that, that we can you just you know, magically make bread like you did. Tell us how to do that so that we can work those works. Jesus was offering the free gift of eternal life, which cannot be earned and it, it cannot be used in such a manner. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. All mankind can do is believe in the gift and receive it in order to be saved. Believing is not a work. It is a response to the gift provided by our heavenly Father. Verse 30, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? 
Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. You mean what sign besides or in addition to the dozens of miracles he's already performed? How quickly they forgot that he just fed them yesterday and performed a miracle by feeding 5,000 people plus wives and, and kids with a single meal that was meant for a child. See, the rabbis of this day taught that Messiah would come and immediately provide the same manna that fell, that God provided for the Israelites back in the days of Moses. They were taught this. So they're saying to Jesus, if, if you are the Messiah, then rain down manna so that we get to eat every day for free. And Jesus is going, what? No, that's not how it works. A faith that only rests on sight is no faith at all. Faith must be balanced with trusting in God's word. So here, Jesus is going to address this. Verse 32, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. <laughs> they still don't get it. They still are talking about the bread that, that they're going to eat for dinner. These people didn't get it. Jesus wasn't talking about the physical bread baked in an oven. The masses wanted another meal, and Jesus rejected their request. He was going to force them to accept his theology, that he had come to save the world, and he was the bread of life. And without him and apart from him, there is no salvation. He was going to press the issue. Every true believer must answer this question. Why do you follow Christ? Why do you follow Jesus? Is it for what he can do for you? Is it for what he has done for you? Or do you follow Christ because of who he is? He is God. He is our creator. And at the core of everything, that is the reason that we want to follow Jesus. Take time later on to consider this and consider your answer. You see, as this world becomes increasingly crazy and difficult to live in, I think that all of us are going to be forced to answer that question. Why do I follow Jesus? Will you follow because of who he is rather than what he can do? If the return of Jesus is later rather than sooner, I think we're all going to be forced to answer that question. Decide to follow Jesus now, not because of what he's done for you or, or, or what he can do, you believe he can do for you, but follow him because he is worthy. He is the only one worthy of our praise. He's the only one worthy of our worship. He's the only one worthy of our trust. Jesus didn't come down from heaven in order to feed our stomachs, although gladly and thankfully he does that. He provides for us. But his primary mission is to save the world by bringing life to the souls of dead men and women. You, you cut, cut right down to the core of it. That's the reason Jesus came. He simply tells the lost, come and follow me. No promises of an easy life. No assurance of worldly gain. 
Only his presence through every storm and eternal life with him that begins both now when you receive Christ and continues throughout all eternity. Next, we read of uh, the first of seven I am declarations that are here in this passage. Here's uh, the first one. It's an unmistakable declaration of Jesus, and he is Jehovah God. When Jesus says, I am, it means I am Jehovah God, the self-existent one. Just as God revealed his name to Moses as I am, Jesus asserts his rightful title here as the pre-existent son of God, I am. Look down at your Bibles, verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And all the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Four responses to Jesus' message. Response number one, a curious response. And here's response number two, a complaining response. Verse 41, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. He used the terminology and claimed to be God. And the Jews went, whoa, that's blasphemy what you just said. Verse 42, and they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? You see, he's in his, he's in his neighborhood. They're going, oh, hold on, Jesus. <laughs> you came down from heaven. Listen, we've known you since you were born. We've known your mom and dad. So how is it that you claim to come down from heaven? Jesus uses this phrase, coming down from heaven, or come down from heaven, as a phrase uh, five times in John. He uses this form, coming down from heaven. It's a clear claim of deity, and they took it that way by their response. Verse 43, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves, A murmur is grumbling to each other. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned... You see, it's not simply uh, good enough to just hear, but one has to learn what they're hearing and, and take it in. Jeremiah the prophet talked about the word of God and the word spoken by God as a spiritual food that was to be ingested. This is what Jesus is talking about. He said, the prophets talked about this. You should know this. And yet they took it the wrong way because they didn't want to receive what he was about to give and offer. 
Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. While it is God who gives people to his Son, these people must then come to Jesus for salvation. The fact that God predestines us for salvation doesn't negate our need to respond. From our fragile and feeble minds, this is difficult to understand and reconcile, but in God's mind, it makes perfect sense. One of Charles Spurgeon's church members asked him how he reconciled these two opposites, and he responded with, oh, I never try to reconcile two friends. They're two friends walking hand in hand as Spurgeon saw them. They both work perfectly together. Our feeble minds have a rough time understanding that. Wait a minute, God called me, and yet I choose? Which is it? Well, it's, it's not either one, it's both. God clearly says in his word that he has called us, but he's also said in his word that we must choose. And all through the Bible, you have both. From our fragile and feeble minds, this is difficult. Only in heaven, I think, will we see the perfect congruency of this truth come together and go, oh, wow, I didn't understand that. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, speaking of himself, he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am, there, is, there it is again, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. They want the manna to come down from heaven like it did for Moses. Jesus is going, you, you want the manna from, wait a minute, I'm the bread of life. You want this manna that falls down so you can eat it? Uh, those people that did that are dead. This, the bread of life, Jesus is talking about, is the bread which comes down from heaven. That one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Speaking of how he would die, he would lay down his life on the cross. He would say, no man takes my life. No one, no one captured me and drug me to the cross. No, I, I laid my life down. No one takes it from me. He came to fulfill a purpose. The manna which God provided to Moses and the people wandering in the desert came at no cost to the Father in heaven. But the bread of life that God sent into the world that would bring about eternal life came at the gravest of all costs. It costs the Father his one and only Son, Jesus. Now God had skin in the game, his own Son's fleshly body that would be nailed to a cross. Jesus refers to his flesh seven times in this dialogue alone. Four responses to Jesus' message. Response number one, a curious response. Response number two, a complaining response. And here's response number three, a contentious response. As I said earlier, Jesus is pressing the listener here, you're going to have to choose to believe or reject me. 
He wasn't going to continue with this circus of people that just wanted to see him perform miracles. He was going to push them to the next step of belief. Verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Again, they took the bread literal, and now they're taking the flesh in a literal. Jesus has spoken this so many different ways, and they should have known from the prophets that what he was speaking of. But when you don't want to accept the message, you reject the messenger. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, he's going to press the button again. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whatever, whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Jeremiah explained all of this. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Once again, the crowd completely misunderstood Jesus' words by taking this analogy literal. All Jesus was saying was that just as we are talking about nourishment and having the need to nourish our bodies by eating and drinking at mealtime, in a spiritual sense, we must drink and eat all that Jesus brings to the table for the nourishment of our souls. Hopefully, that's why you're here this morning. You've come to be nourished, to have your soul nourished by opening up the Word of God and listening to it, by responding to it as you lift up your voice to worship the Lord this morning. Hopefully, you don't just eat one meal a week. If you did that physically, you would, you would die in six months. You'd be so emaciated or dead, you need to eat more often. You need to eat almost daily to be healthy. So don't just come here only to feast on the Word of God today, but go home and open your Bibles and read them. Come to understand them. Dig in and then do what it says. Live how it challenges us to live. Some religions believe that Jesus is talking about communion or the Eucharist here, but I don't agree with that at all. Why would Jesus discuss something that he hadn't fully explained until the Last Supper when he instituted the communion? And why would Jesus discuss communion with a bunch of angry unbelievers anyway? The answer is he wouldn't. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about his flesh and blood would bring salvation. Additionally, down in verse 63, Jesus explains that he is speaking metaphorically here. And when communion is spoken of in the Gospels, as in Corinthians, the word is not flesh, but rather body. Interesting to note. Jesus' teaching is often a beautiful metaphorical explanation of truth 
And to make it literal is to commit the same mistake that these unbelievers were making. Four responses to Jesus' message. Response number one, curious response. Response number two, a complaining response. Response number three, a contentious response. And lastly, response number four, a condemning response. Jesus' words here are not difficult to understand by these people, but they are difficult to accept. And once they understood them, they had to make a decision. And while some believed, many and most, I would say, rejected the teaching entirely. Verse 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Jesus was referring to after he came out of the grave, 40 days later when he went ascended back to heaven, Jesus was already asking them, what would, what would you think if I was t- caught up into heaven and you witnessed it? Would you believe then? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Restored for Life is a radio ministry brought to you by Restored Community Church. Visit RestoredCommunityChurch.org to learn more about Pastor Ben Harris and for service times. Join Pastor Ben next time as we set out on a journey to discover the authentic life as Christ followers through obedience to His Word.